And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Rather, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that the day of judgment will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. That prophecy was spoken by Jesus, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Now, when I think of Jesus, my first thought is not of a man who would lambaste an entire city, even condemning it to destruction and damnation. So what happened in Capernaum that compelled Jesus to say what he said? Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. As always, you can visit storiesofsymmetry.com for blogs, podcasts, to give a gift, and more. It began in the 2nd century BC, the town, that is, and although it was neither exceptionally wealthy nor exceedingly large, Jesus made Capernaum the home base of his earthly ministry. The town was located in the Galilee region of northern Israel, along the shore of Lake Galilee, and there, for about three years, Jesus lived among the inhabitants walking in the streets and teaching in the synagogue. There, he performed miracles, signs for the people that he was more than just another charismatic rabbi. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He commanded a paralytic to walk. He brought a young woman back from the dead, and more. Of course, Jesus also did many things outside of Capernaum and the most essential parts of his ministry happened in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, for the three years that he was a prominent public figure, Capernaum was his hub, the epicenter and nexus of it all. The sad irony, though, is that he didn't make much impact on the people of Capernaum. By the end of his time on earth, most, if not nearly all, of the town, well, they just didn't believe his message. They didn't believe who he claimed he was or why he claimed to be there. It was because of that disbelief that Jesus was so incensed, because he had performed so many great works in their midst, and yet they didn't believe and they didn't repent. It was all lost on them. Jesus said that if he had done in Sodom what he had done in Capernaum, then Sodom, that most wretched hive of scum and villainy, would have been saved. Yes, even Sodom would have believed. But for Capernaum, who had Jesus in their midst for so long and yet still denied him, for Capernaum, the day of judgment, he said, will be harsh beyond measure. Capernaum's response to Jesus seems unfathomable. With Jesus in their midst performing signs and wonders, 
how did they not realize who he was? How is it possible that such things were lost on them? But on the other hand, maybe it makes perfect sense. It's like when Jesus told a parable about a beggar named Lazarus and a rich man who should have cared for him. Eventually, they each died. Lazarus found rest with God, while the rich man found torment in Hades. The rich man cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Yet, even if I cannot escape this punishment, at the very least send Lazarus to my family still living, so that they might believe and avoid this place. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let your family listen to them. But no, cried the rich man, that won't work. But if someone risen from the dead were to visit them, then they would surely repent. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The moral of the story is that if the Bible and the testimonies of the faithful don't convince a person about God, then neither will someone rising from the dead. Of course, we reject that moral. We assume that if a dead man were to show up and tell us about God, or tell us that hell is real as the rich man suggested, then as sure as the day is long, we would be in the front pew on Sunday. Our natural instinct is to think that if something big happens, something we can't ignore, then we must believe, because then it would be right before our eyes, plain as day, undeniable. But the fact of the matter is that we can deny it. We deny, or make some undermining excuse, or ignore it altogether. There is a reason that God rarely operates with grand and conspicuous signs and wonders. It's not that God wouldn't go through every effort to get our attention or be revealed plainly. Perhaps if that worked, then God would do it. But that's exactly the problem. It doesn't work. Like Walter Miller said, ask for an omen, then stone it when it comes. Such is the human essence. Even then, I am alighting the fact that some people just plain don't want God in their lives. Nobody, myself included, wants a man with a white beard up in the clouds, watching and judging every thought and action. No sane person wants to submit himself to real-world Santa, but with higher stakes. I get it, then, that when people think of God in those terms, they want to stay as far away as possible. I wouldn't want that in my life either. And yet, I can't help but wonder about what might happen if those same people met God. If they came to truly know God, to catch a glimpse of the nature of God, then would they come around and want that? Want God? Accept God in their lives? I feel like the answer would be yes. They would want God. But then again, if I were betting on Capernaum, I would have thought that they'd believe, but I would have been wrong. So, I don't know. Perhaps it doesn't really matter who God is. Somebody will always reject him. Some people 
just plain don't want God in their lives. The script flips, though, because God wants everyone, all people, those who reciprocate that want, and those who don't. The hiccup, however, is that God does not force that relationship. God does not, perhaps even cannot, make you want, make you love him. God does not force our emotions or any state of heart. When we love, it is our own choice, not God's strong-arming. What does happen, though, is that the Almighty encourages us to change our hearts. So, if God really wants me as fervently as I say he does, then why doesn't God encourage me more? Why not appear to me in a dream? God, why don't you show yourself? Why not give me a sign? Let me repeat something that I said earlier, but this time with a modification. There is a reason that God rarely operates with grand and conspicuous signs and wonders. It's not that God wouldn't go through every effort to get our attention or be revealed plainly. It's that God already has. As is something of a habit here on Stories of Symmetry, let's begin early on in the Bible, in the Torah, this time in the book of Exodus, and let's consider its namesake event, the Exodus. God told Moses that the Israelites would gain their freedom through divine intervention. Thereafter, all who were in the land, Egyptian and Israelite alike, witnessed ten plagues, as if ten times God said, Here I am. Shortly after the Israelites had made their exodus, a band of Egyptians chased after them. So it happened that the Israelites found themselves between a rock and a hard place, with the Egyptians pursuing them on one side, and a body of water that they couldn't cross on the other. God then made a demonstration of both power and determination to save the people by parting the water so that they might walk on dry land to the other side. Farther down the road, when the Israelites were running low on food, God provided food. After that, when they were plagued by deadly serpents, God gave them a cure. The Holy One gave them water from a rock, gave them a city without a fight, gave them land that was promised, and yet, with each new opportunity to do so, the people still doubted their God. No matter the miracle, they still didn't believe that God was on their side. Consider also Elijah, who, in his day, remained the last faithful prophet of the Lord. It was Elijah who confronted the prophets of Baal and put them and their God to shame. It was Elijah who, at the Lord's command, spoke a drought over the land. It was Elijah who brought a widow's son back from the grave. It was Elijah who did so much for God, and through whom great wonders were worked. 
and yet, when the queen sought to kill Elijah, he panicked and ran away. God sent an angel after him, not once but twice, and brought the wayward prophet to a holy mountain, whereat God then asked, Elijah, why do you flee like a fugitive? What are you doing? What is going on? Elijah then boldly replied, You don't understand my plight. You just don't get it. I serve you so faithfully. I am the only one who does. But now they want to kill me. In response, God made a display of awesome power, then asked Elijah, What's the problem? Why are you running away and hiding in fear? You don't understand my plight, the prophet retorted, repeating exactly what he had said earlier. You just don't get it. I serve you so faithfully. I am the only one who does. But now they want to kill me. Going through the story, the reader can feel God's own frustration, as if wanting to shake Elijah and say, Are you kidding me? I am the one who can set fire to the mountain and cause the winds to roar. I, not the queen, I am God. And it is I who have power. After all that we have been through, you and I, do you still doubt me so much? Do you truly believe that I would give you into the hands of your enemy after everything we've done together? God does this on and on, over and over. More than a millennium's worth is recorded in the Old Testament. God, are you there? Signs and wonders. God, are you on our side? Signs and wonders. God, show yourself. Signs and wonders. God, prove your love. Signs and wonders. It goes like that up until about 2,000 years ago, when God said, there's only one thing left to do. I have to go down there myself. Now, Jesus and the Incarnation serve multiple purposes. God was not only coming to us in person that we might believe, but also came to save the world. But of course, you can choose to view those two as merely different sides of the same coin. The Bible says that because God so loved the world, he sent his only son Jesus. He came to do more than give a first-hand account of the Father, to do more than perform miracles and give parables. Jesus came into the world to save the world, and he saved the world by absorbing unto himself the world's own punishment. You see, when we disobey God, it is not without a penalty. There is a cost that is incurred, and the price, the price that we ought to have paid, is separation from the divine, which is to say, death. Jesus did not owe that punishment. He did not deserve death. And yet, he substituted himself for us and took that sentence upon himself. Jesus, God's own son become human for our sake, took the punishment that was ours, the crucifixion that we deserve. And part of the reason he did that 
was to evince God's unfathomable love for us. Hence, Jesus said, Greater love hath no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Through Jesus and his actions, God effectively said, What else can I do to show my love than to die in your place? There is no greater act than this. Do you believe me now, that I love you so fully, and that I want you so desperately? The only question that follows is, why should I want God? God may want me, and that's beautiful and touching, but do I want God in my life? What, if anything, does it gain me? And if this is all about a ticket to heaven when I die, then count me out. Good thing that it's not about that. It's not about heaven and hell. It's not about imposing rules upon your life. When Jesus explained it, he said, I came to bring you life, a more abundant life, life to the fullest. Indeed, God did not die for you so that you can have more regulations in your life. God came for us for the same reason that God came to the Israelites, to liberate us from our bondage. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And therefore, if your religion does not bring you liberation, then it is not from Jesus. Don't get me wrong, though. Don't take my words and run wild. Consider it like this. God never forbade alcohol. But if you're addicted to it, then that's not freedom. If you can't find joy away from the bottle, then you're in bondage. Consider it like this. Jesus never set forth a diktat to give away 10% of your income. But if you let money rule your life, then you're a slave to it. Such is not the Christian life. It makes me think about when the prophet Habakkuk asked the question, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? He was reflecting on the idols that we ourselves make and then raise up as gods. We oversee their apotheoses and hail them as lords, and then we trust in those idols, but we forget that they were made by the hands of men. So Habakkuk continued by answering his own question, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but in it there is no breath at all. Life, true life, a free life, is found in only one place, God. And you might not be convinced that there's freedom with God, or you might not be convinced that God really wants you. So we ask ourselves, how do I know that God wants people, wants me? To address this, I have one more example, and in truth, it's the culmination, the point, if you will, of everything that we've discussed so far. If you remember nothing else, if you've tuned out everything else, remember this. God, the living God, does not have a name. 
You can of course tell me that God does, and you may be right, but God chooses not to use the name, and we follow suit. Moses was tending his flock when he saw a bush that was on fire, yet not burning up. Such a sight is quite a wonder, so Moses went to investigate. When he approached the mysterious burning bush, a voice called out and said, Moses, Moses, this is holy ground, and I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. During that encounter, God commissioned Moses to lead the people of Israel, God's people. But Moses asked the Holy One, When the people ask me, What is the name of the God that sent you? What should I tell them? Then the Lord replied, I am, I am. Tell the people, I am, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You see, idols have names. Pagan gods have names. The gods of Egypt all had names. But the living God chooses not to use a name. When Moses asked, Who are you? God replied, I am. This begs the question, I am who? I am what? But God said, No, 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 it doesn't work like that. I am. That's it. I am. I am. This sobriquet, this I am moniker that God employs, is beautiful and mysterious, all manner of good things. I can't wait to share all about it with you. Let's meet together for an episode titled What's in a Name, and we can discuss it all there. But that's for another time. Today, all we need to understand is that I am, beautiful as it is, can be confusing. The truth is that we need a better identifier than I am. It confuses people to say I am, and they don't know what we're talking about. So the conclusion is that we need a better appellation, a better name. We need some kind of description. For this reason, God provided Moses with an epithet. Tell them that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My only question is, why them? Why them, God? I know they're the patriarchs and all, but of all the people with whom you could associate yourself, you choose the most dysfunctional family known to that part of the world. But then again, is there anyone who could be worthy of God's association? So why didn't God go for clarity and just choose a nickname for himself? And the answer is that God wasn't going for clarity. God was making a statement. God was saying, I know that Abraham was lacking, but you see, when I called him forth into an unknown land, he went. When I called Isaac, he came. When I called Jacob, he followed my voice, and we met along the river Yabak, and he walked away a changed man. So I called him Yisrael. These are my people. They might not be the types that you'd choose, but they're the ones 
who I choose. To you, they might look like JV, but they're my varsity. And I, their lives have had a lot of low points, but when their mettle was tested, they trusted me. They trusted me with the kind of faith that can move a mountain. So when the people ask you who I am, ask them if they remember Abraham, because I am his God. As the supreme ruler of existence, I can define myself however I please. So take note that I am the God of Abraham. The moral of the story is this, that God loved mankind so much that for the rest of eternity, the Holy One himself would attach his name to humans, specifically to those humans that believed and had faith. And if that doesn't convince you of how much God loves and wants humanity, then I don't know what will. Thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and the season finale will be out in two weeks. Be sure to tune in, and also check out storiesofsymmetry.com in the meantime. Go with God, the God of Abraham. Go in peace.